Now, uh, if you want to turn to page 25, what, what I included in the notes there are some, some basic rules when it comes to understanding the Bible, uh, how to interpret the Bible. The, the technical term for this is hermeneutics and how we go about um, interpreting it. And the basic underlying principle of all hermeneutics is that we're to exegete from scriptures rather than eisegete. And what that is just fancy words for saying exegete is to, to read from the scriptures and let the scriptures speak out to us. Whereas eisegesis is when I read into the scriptures or I, I basically determine what scriptures are saying. And, and the problem with eisegesis is that now I become the authority. And scripture is to have authority over me. It's to, it's to tell me what God's saying, not the other way around. I'm not to tell scripture what it's saying. And that's eisegesis. And that's a great mistake a lot of people make. And so what are some basic principles when it comes to understanding exegesis? And, and so we got listed some of the basic ones. And the first one is, number one, just the Bible is generally easy to understand. Um, it, it's not supposed to be some secret, complex book. That doesn't mean that there's not depths and not, you know, deep things of God that are, are difficult to understand and, and hard to wrap your mind around. But generally, for the most part, it's straightforward. It's got to be that way because it's meant for you and I. And looking at this audience, it's got to be simple. <laughs> Saying if you're paying attention. Saying if you're paying attention. If it's for me, it's got to be really simple, all right? If I'm teaching it, it's got to be even dead simple. So, you know, it's generally going to be easy for us to understand. Another one, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is what we looked at even earlier uh, this evening when we looked at the possibility, can you lose your salvation? No, why not? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. We start with easy ones to let them uh, explain to us the more difficult ones. Uh, and that's the other one. Use, use, uh, um, you, don't inter you, sorry, you interpret difficult passages with easier ones. Uh, the next one is taking into account the literary genre of, of the Scripture. Understand there are many different forms in Scripture. There is narrative. That's what the Gospels are. They're telling us stories. There are some historical ones. There is poetry. There are books of wisdom. There are books on teaching, the epistles. So there is many different forms of Scripture. And understanding, um, is, is Jesus, for example, telling us a parable or is he giving us a command? Because if you don't understand the difference between those, you can get yourselves into trouble. For example, Jesus says, I am the door. If we don't understand that he's using an illustration or he's telling a parable, then if we say, well, Jesus is a door, that means he's got hinges and a door handle. And he swings on an axis. That's Jesus, because he's a door. Well, no, that's not what he's meaning. He means I'm the door. I'm the only way in. It's, an, it's a parable. It's a, it's a picture. It's an illustration for us. So understanding then what is he saying will help us understand um, what, the, what the Bible is trying to get at. Uh, another important one is doing a word and grammar study. Uh, we did that when we started looking at the word enlightened and tasted and, and, and even the fall away. What is the word saying? Are there different interpretations of the word? Are there other ways that the word can be uh, understood? How did other authors use it? How did that same author use it in different passages? Um, what, what did some of the secular writers use? How did they use that word? Because that, again, gives us some understanding of it. Uh, what is the verb use, if it's a verb? Is it aortist tense? Is it a future tense? And, and so forth. It all gives us some understanding into, or greater understanding into the word that, that are being spoken to us. Sometimes it's helpful to understand what the passage is not saying, to rule it out. So, for example, we know in Hebrews 6, it's not talking about losing your salvation, because we can rule it out with other scripture verses. And then the last one is really, really important. And that's understanding the context of the passage. And this is something that I think many people neglect to do because they have such a narrow view on a verse. They just look at one verse in and of itself and they walk away from that one verse with the doctrine or theology. And what we need to do is take a step back and look at the passage in a whole and try to get a sense of the flow and the logic and, and what is the writer trying to convey to us before we can go in deeper and try to understand it. Now, what we did before the break is we only looked at three verses. And really, this passage begins in Hebrews 5, verse 11, and goes all the way to 620. 
It's kind of unfortunate that there are, there are chapter breaks, but it's really unfortunate where they put the chapter break on this one. Because now you have this idea that there's, there's, the, there's a separation between them, but really Hebrews 4, 5, and 6 can only be understood in light of Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 20. And so what we want to do then is understand what is the context? What is the writer of Hebrews getting at? Because if we can understand that, then we got a chance of understanding what is he trying to convey in verses 4 to 6. Does that make sense? So let's go back to 5, verse 11. And so he's in the first 10 verses of chapter 10, or chapter 5, sorry, he's talking about Jesus being a high priest on the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to return to Melchizedek in chapter 7, and we'll look at him next week. But, but he says, concerning him, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, but it's really hard to explain. And the reason it's hard to explain is because you have become dull of hearing. Now, notice here, it's you've become dull of hearing. Meaning, at one point, what were they? They were sharp. At one point, they got it. And they could understand, and they could grasp things, and they were doing really well. But over time, they've become dull of hearing. The word dull really means sluggish, slothful. So they've gotten lazy with the gospel. And that's happened over time. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... So obviously these aren't, you know, new Christians. You ought to be teachers. You've been a Christian for a long time. But the problem is you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and solid food. So these people have been Christian for a long time, but they haven't grown. You know, there, there are some people that have been Christians for, for 20 years but the reality is, they just had one year of being a Christian 20 times over. They're very immature in their faith. They're, they're kind of like this guy here who went to a class reunion. <laughs> Poor Perkins hasn't grown at all. And so what he's talking about with these Christians is, is you guys, you haven't grown at all. You are still immature Christians. You need milk and not solid food. Who do we give milk to? Babies. Babies. I got one at home. And we can't give her roast beef. What would happen if we gave her roast beef? Yeah, we'd suffer for it. Yeah, She'd choke. She can't handle it. She can't stomach it. And so all she gets is milk. Because that's all she can handle. Now, is that bad? No. No. Nothing wrong with that for babies. But if you give an adult a steady diet of milk and only milk, what will you have in 10, 20 years' time? A sick, anemic, you know, baby in in adult diapers, right? I mean, they're they're still immature. I was going to put a picture up of that, but I didn't want to. It was frightening. I was terrified at it. I didn't want to subject it to it. So uh, it it wasn't pretty. Um, And so so what he's saying is you, you need milk. You need the elementary things. For everyone who partakes of milk only uh, of only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. So what's the solid food? This teaching, this word of righteousness. And in a succinct form of what righteousness is, this, this teaching of righteousness, is really what we've talked about in the Exchange Life message, truths. The fact that Jesus died and we died with Him, we were buried with Him, we were raised up with Him as new creations, joined to Him where He now lives in us. That's the teaching of righteousness. Why do I say it? Because He goes on to explain that in verse 14. But solid foods for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And the word evil, it would be better translated as worthless. So it's not contrasting with righteous living versus wicked sinful living, holy versus evil in that sense, but really what is holy, what is of God, and what is worthless, what is of the flesh. And that's what he's getting at here. And he's saying the immature Christian can't handle this, can't understand this. And, and I see this often when I'm teaching people or when I'm counseling people, and we begin to explain to them the reality that Christ came to live in through us, and if that's not happening, then it's our flesh. It may be good-looking flesh, but it's still flesh, and therefore it is worthless. And inevitably, someone asks me the question, well, how will I know? 
How do I know if it's my flesh and how do I know it's God? A valid question, nothing wrong with the question, an age-appropriate question, but it shows me that they're only used to milk. And that's okay, that's just where they're at. But it shows that they're, they're, they're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. They don't understand that there is a difference between good-looking flesh and Jesus living in you. They don't see the difference. They don't understand the, the reality, the dynamic life of Christ versus what they can do in their own strength and their flesh. But the mature Christian, he's able to see it. He's able to spot it. And I've seen it time and time again. As people grow and mature in this message, they stop asking me the question, how will you know? Well, why? Because now they know. They've come to enter in and understand who Jesus is and what he means to them and what he looks like in them. And now they hear his voice and they know when it's their flesh and they know when it's Jesus because they've, they've trained their senses to discern between what's good, what's of God and what's worthless, what's of the flesh. Does that make sense? So the whole context here in the end of chapter five is talking not about losing your salvation. It's talking about growing up. I mean, even the imagery he's using, he's using baby, babies versus adults. Now, is a baby any less a person than an adult? No. So it's not contrasting two different people, two different kinds of people, believers versus unbelievers. Instead, it's contrasting the same kind of person. They're just at two different stages on their journey. One's mature, one's not. So that's the point. That's what he's getting at. So then in verse 1, he says, Therefore, because you're so immature, because you're so accustomed to milk, because you've become so dull and so slothful and so sluggish in your hearing, therefore, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and let us press on to maturity. See, what he's going to do is he's going to help them grow up. Rather than leaving them as babies and giving them milk, he's saying, let's get going. You've been, been a Christian for 20 years, but it's been one year, 20 times over. Well, let's get into grade two. Let's advance this a little bit. And he's not saying let's leave the elementary teachings, have nothing to do with it anymore. It's more of the idea, let's build on it. You see, if you were a builder of a house and you built a foundation, and then the, after you finished foundation, you built another foundation on top of that. And then you built another foundation on top of that. And then another foundation on top of that. What would you get? Too many foundations. Too many foundations. <laughs> a big concrete block that no one could live in. And it'd be worthless. So what he's saying here is now, we've built the foundation. We've laid the foundation. So stop building foundations. Get on with it. Begin to grow up. And then he explains what are those elementary things. What is the foundation? And what he does in the next two verses is he's going to show us three different couplets. So these, these things come in pairs. And so <clears throat> the first thing he's going to show to us is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. So the first thing here really is all about our salvation. Think about it. <clears throat> when, when you are a sinner and you come to, need, to see the need for salvation, you are repenting from your works. You're repenting from your sins, your own efforts to save yourself. That's the repentance from dead works. And you're now putting your faith in God. You're putting your faith toward God. So the first two are really just talking about the basic salvation message. And what I found really interesting in here is, is I looked more about this faith toward God because, you know, the whole book of, the of Hebrews, the theme is Jesus is better, so live by faith. And I thought, well, that kind of blows that out of the water if he's saying, let's move on from faith toward God. But I looked at this word faith, and what I found interesting is, here, faith is a noun. Now, what's a noun? Person, place, or thing. It's an object. And what he's saying to us is we need to move past the idea that faith is a noun and really graduate and move towards faith being a verb. So what's a verb? It's an action word. See, too many Christians look at their faith as something just to possess. I have faith in God. Well, that's good. That's a start. But are you now living by faith toward God? Is it now the action? 
Are you living out of the verb faith or are you still living out of the noun faith? Does that make sense? So he's wanting to, to move past just the elementary basics of it, which is, I have faith toward God. I'm saved. Good for you. Welcome to this world. You've been born again. Now let's learn to crawl. Maybe even learn to sit up. Let's learn to stand. Let's learn to walk. And then he moves to the next couplet, which is now going to be instruction about washings, or another way to understand the word washings is baptism. So instruction about baptisms and a laying on of hands. Again, that's connected with our salvation experience. Instruction about baptisms or washings, that's, that's the sign that the early church uses and we still use today to show the fact that we were placed into Christ and Christ was crucified, we were crucified and buried and raised up as, as new creations. And the laying on of hands was the sign or the symbol for receiving the Holy Spirit. So again, these are the things that they would do on the onset of being saved. And then finally, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You know, when's it going to happen? Who's it going to happen to? And how's it going to happen? And, and all these debates and so forth. And, you know, apparently now it's in five months. So plan accordingly. Um, and so, you know, we have all these debates about these things. Now, it's interesting. Of these six things or three couplets that the writer of Hebrews has listed, if we look at our churches, this is all we talk about. It's the same basic salvation message over and over and over again. And if they're not talking about that, then they're talking about the end times because it's fun to talk about and it's attractive and people donate to that, I guess. But there's no growth. Do you have a question? Or? Is repentance a one-time thing? Or is that... Um, well, repentance in this in, literally means to change your mind. That's the, the word is uh, metamomni. I can't say Greek. I can't even pronounce English properly. So, But it, it, it's literally the idea of changing your mind, changing the way you think. And really, that's the whole sanctification process, is, is constantly discovering the lies we believe and replacing them with the truth about who God is and to us and for us and in us. So there is an initial repentance where I come to realize I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. But then there's an ongoing repentance of continuing to, to discover about, you know, who he is and what's right, what's wrong, and living in him. So the answer to your question is yes and in, no. <laughs> it, confession, it just means to agree with God. So when I repent, I'm confessing. And when I confess, hopefully I'm repenting. I agree with you, God, that this is right and my way is wrong. Therefore, I repent. I change my thinking. So I find it interesting that time and time again, these, these three couplets is all we focus in on the church. And, and it's not wrong that we talk about them. It's just the degree and the amount that we talk about them that I think shows the degree to which we are infants. That we still have so much baby talk in our churches. In fact, most of these things have led to church splits. I mean, there's great debates about how do you baptize somebody? Right? Is it full immersion? Is it a partial immersion? Do you pour water on their head? Do you sprinkle it? Do you shoot them with a water pistol? I mean, is it a super soaker? Do you use a hose? I mean, within, within uh, 70 years of Christ's death, around 100 AD, there's a document that, that describes how you are to properly baptize somebody. That you're supposed to do it in cold water that's running. And if that doesn't work, then you can do this. And if that's not available, then do that. And if you can't do this, then you do that. I mean, we miss the point. It's baby talk. And that's what we're focused about. Church splits are on the, over this stuff. Baby talk. Immaturity. Let's press on if God permits. We'll come back to that. So the whole idea is maturity. Maturity. So the natural question here is, the author is talking about the desire and the need to grow up in maturity in Christ. So the natural question is, why? Why is it important that we continue to grow? What's the, what's the significance of it? Why do we need to do it? And well, that's where 4, 5, and 6 come in now. So he says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have, been ta- who have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So in the case of the guy who's saved, the believer, the authentic Christian, who have then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again through repentance since they again crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So now, because we have the context of the passage, all about maturity, nothing to do with salvation, all about maturity, what does verse 6 say? Understanding is talking to a believer. Well, let's break it down a little bit. Let's start with the word fall away. We talked about this one briefly. It's the Greek word peripipto. Peri meaning with, pipto meaning to fall. So it literally means to fall with or to fall among. I think of it as kind of getting stuck in the muck. And so what is he talking about here? What are you falling into or falling with? The ABCs of Christianity. It's not that you've fallen away, that you've committed some grievous sin. It's that you've gotten stuck in your diapers. And what have you gotten bogged down with? The foundational truths of Christianity. The ABCs of it. And for the one who gets stuck in that and doesn't continue to grow, who's chosen to do so, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And so here this renewed to repentance means to become a new creation again. If you spend 20 years as a baby Christian, those 20 years are gone. You can't get them back. You don't get a do-over. And that was 20 years that were incredibly valuable that you wasted. And I firmly, firmly believe that what happens here has a significant impact in eternity. And we have but a small moment on this side of eternity to impact eternity on the other side. Now, why do I believe that? Think about your salvation. When you got saved, that one simple decision, did it have an impact on your eternity? An immense impact. Well, why is that limited to that one act only? Why not other acts? And Scripture talks about that, and we'll see that in a, in a minute, how everything we have, we have great opportunities to impact eternity. And if we waste it, you can't get it back. You can't redeem that time. And so if you've wasted 20 years as an immature Christian, it's not coming back. And then it goes on to say, and to put him to open shame, because they've disregarded the work of Christ. So the whole attitude is, well, I'm saved now, I'll just stay as a baby, and I've missed the point of what Christ did. He didn't just save you and I to get us into heaven one day. He saved you and I to put his life in us, that we might be the light of the world, that we might walk with him and talk with him and live in and from him, that we might do life together with him. That's the point. But this person who's stuck in their ABCs has ignored it. They've disregarded it. They've shown how unimportant they see Christ because they got stuck in the basic doctrines of Christ rather than falling in love with the person. Yeah. When you talk about having an impact on eternity, like, is that possible that, that for example, that it's because we are um, acting on our place or not following what Jesus wants us to do, that we need the opportunity to share to others the truth? Uh, that's one example, but it, it may not even be that simple or, or that, that profound even. It, it just is at home with my girls. If I, if I choose to live this way, stuck in the ABCs and the doctrines and missing out on Christ, I'm going to be living out of my flesh. And all those years, I could be showing them Jesus, and instead, I've just shown them me and how ugly I really am in my flesh. I've missed a golden opportunity to, to impart life and share life with my girls. Instead, I've shared in my flesh. So a paraphrase, I think, of what Hebrews 6.6 6 is saying, really, 
is is so and then those that are getting stuck in the abcs of christianity it's impossible to start all over again and redeem those wasted opportunities for they disregard the significance of the work of christ in saving them they missed the point they got stuck in this basic way and it could be the traditions absolutely yeah I mean, that's, that's really what the baptisms and laying on of hands, those are the traditions. Absolutely, yeah. But really, God does redeem all our wasted life from before we knew His life in us, right? In a sense he can. Like, he can, yeah. Like we can't, some of us who are older can't look back and, and, yeah, that's and, not, and that's, say, yeah. oh, that's been wasted. Um, yeah. You know. I can't do anything about it, and I can't can't start all over again. No, no, and and here's here's the other side of it, and and we'll get to that in a second. It's not to make you feel guilty for all the time you've wasted. That's not it, because remember this is a warning, and, and there's there's another side to it that's that's that kind of clicked for me just about two and a half hours ago now. So, um, um, like if we, for example, if we waste an opportunity because we were acting on our faith, and like this person, we were supposed to like share with that person but God like like we we didn't kind of do it the right way but if but God will make a way for that person to no it, that was it God was God was trusting in you you were the only hope for God no. <laughs> yeah no <laughs> no God's smarter than that um, no God yeah God doesn't need us because so that's not the point God, like, yeah that's that's not the point um, because God's gonna look after them so We'll, we'll keep going, and I'll start to explain some more. Just the other thing about what Mary was saying, too, is that uh, I think it's a pretty fine line between uh, that and works again, because you can even say, well, oh, I was such a terrible person before I accepted Christ, and so now I have to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's not... We're, we're, gonna, we're missing one more piece of this puzzle that will round it all out, I think, and, and help us make sense. So let's understand the warning, then. So the warning in part is you cannot restore the wasted years of, of remaining as a baby. So grow up so that faith in God is not a noun but a verb. Mature in this. So that you are living in and from Jesus Christ in your life. That's the point in all this. But here's, here's the other big piece of the puzzle that I think is the frightening part of this warning. Remember verse 3? The part before that said this. So therefore leaving the elementary principles and what the elementary principles were. You know... Uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God as a noun, uh, baptisms and the many forms of it, and laying on of hands, and, re- and uh, the end of days, and judgment, and so forth. Let's leave that aside if God permits. And that's the other side of this. You see, what, what this warning is aimed at is the guy who's slothful, the guy who's become lazy in hearing. It's not aimed at the person who didn't know better and just loved God but, but didn't, wasn't taught or explained properly. It's the guy who didn't care. That's the slothful, slothful part to it. So it's not that he's upset that he, he wasted all those years. He, he didn't have an opportunity. He didn't know better. This is the guy who had an opportunity. He just didn't use it. He, he really didn't care. And so the warning here is really if God permits. You see, it may happen to somebody who, who rejects God's grace in a sense that he understands forgiveness but, and is a believer, but isn't willing to go on, that God may say, okay, then we will go no further. And your growth will end here. Remember that third soil, the one that was overloaded with the thorns and its fruit never came to maturity. There was a root, there was some fruit, but it never came to maturity because he was, care- he was overly concerned with the cares of this world and less concerned with God. That's what this person is. And so the last part of this warning then is, and if we don't choose to mature, we may lose the opportunity to, to do so. God may say, enough's enough. Just like he did with the children of Israel. They, he rescued them from Egypt But when they refuse to believe, he says, I swore by my wrath, you will never enter into the the land of rest. You will not enter into the promise. 
And if our attitude towards God is such that we neglect him, we are slothful and lazy towards him, he may say, then I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you yourself. And to me, there is no greater discipline or punishment or consequence than getting what you want in the flesh. And I've seen that. Where people say, well, God will forgive me and I'll do it anyways. And then you reap what you sow. You reap the consequences of that. So this is really paralleling John 15 with the branches that bear no fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so let's keep going because that's actually what he's, he's getting at now. So the next verse now, because remember, I understand the context. How does it all fit and flow? So going on, verse 7, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sake it is tilled. He receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So there's no value to it. So he's, 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 he's discarding it. He's, he's throwing it away. And so he's got this imagery of plants or fruits producing, bearing fruit, versus the one that doesn't. So the one who's trusting Christ, brings forth vegetation, receives a blessing, but the one that doesn't, worthless, close, close to being cursed, it's not, but ends up being burned. So let's see, are there some similar passages that support this view? And uh, we'll get to the one in John in a second. Just the magic of PowerPoint doesn't let me do that. Uh, but first one I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 15. And uh, let me read it to you. Here he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. So he's using the same imagery that we saw in Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 5. You are babies. You need milk. You're immature. And he's using the same thing here in Corinthians, the same idea. You're infants. You're baby. You still need milk. Because why? You're not spiritual. You're acting as mere men. You're living out of the flesh. He goes on to say, uh, For no man can lay a foundation other than, what, than, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. How will it become evident? For, in the day, for the day will show it because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which is built on remains, he'll receive a reward. So if he did it with the gold, diamonds, jewels, uh, silver, and it passes through the fire, it will remain. But if it was wood, hay, and stubble, what's going to happen when the fire comes in? It will burn up pretty quick. Well, what are these different things? Well, the gold, the silver, the precious stones and jewels, that's all the work that Christ does through us. That's him. What's the wood, hay, and stubble? What I do. It may be handcrafted. It may look really good and stained and, and be the work of an artisan. But when it gets to that fire, it's going to go. But watch what it says in verse 15. Now, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet it is so by fire. So he's saved, but he smells like smoke. All his good works, all the stuff he did in his flesh is gone. And he loses all that but he's still saved. So that's the same idea here. So if it yields thorns and thistles, or could we say wood, hay, and straw, it's worthless. He's close to being cursed, but he's not. And it ends up being burned. But he himself will be saved, even though he smells like smoke. But the other one, who's trusting in Christ, the gold, the jewels, the precious stones, that will pass through the fire, bring forth vegetation, and he'll receive a reward. Do you see how that pattern fits it? Same idea. Now we get to John 15, 5 and 6, is what John was saying here. So in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do very little. Is that what it says? You can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, rest in me, trust in me, live by faith in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. If you live out of your own flesh, you will experience death. And so they're gathered up and they're cast into the fire and they're burned. And all your good works, all your energy, your flesh, good looking, bad looking, doesn't matter, goes up in a puff of smoke. In Jeremiah 17, 5-8, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes. Why? So he's, he's this. He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own efforts, his own resources. And so all he can produce is worthless wood, hay, and stubble. In a time of drought, he's got nothing. And so he's like, he's, he's kindling wood, he's firewood. And it's just going to be all burnt up. In verse 7, but, sorry, it goes on in verse 6, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. For he will live like a, a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But his leaves will be green, and it will, be, and will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. So compare that to this one. This is the person who trusts the Lord. He's got an underground stream. And so he's always got water. So in a time of drought, he doesn't need the rain. He's still going to bring forth vegetation. And that's you and I. We have Christ in us. And as we rely upon him, even in a time of drought, people hating you, people uh, spitting on you, you're not feeling love, you're in trials or persecution, you still got Jesus in you. That's all you need. And you will continue to bring forth vegetation, even in the difficult times. Does that make sense? Um, and then it's Galatians 6, 7, and 9. You're reaping what you sow and so forth. And, and we won't... We won't look at that one because it's just short on time. But, but do you see the, the supporting passages that fit this view? That if we don't go on to maturity, we get stuck. And anything we do in that flesh just disappears. It's all burnt up. And so if you remain immature, if you remain living out of your flesh, when you get to the end, all you're going to have is wood, hay, and straw. But if you grow up, if you mature, and you discern this, this teaching on righteousness, Christ living in you, you will bring forth vegetation and receive a reward. Does that make sense? Do you see the warning that he's trying to get, the, the, the point of all this? In verse 9, he says, But beloved, we're convinced the better things concerning you. We don't think this is going to happen to you. We believe that God will permit you to grow up. That you won't choose to remain dull in hearing. And you won't choose to remain slothful to the point where God won't allow you to grow. And we're convinced of better things of you. And not only that, but of things that accompany salvation. So he's not talking about salvation, but the things that will accompany it. Though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust to us to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. And in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. So he's acknowledging, you've done good things. You've done things trusting in Christ. You've done things out of his strength. And what, God's not going to forget that, and he's not going to take that away from you. We understand that. And verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, you won't stay dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That you grow up. That you mature. See, really what he's talking about is the judgment and the rewards that every Christian will face. And so what this is referred to is the beam the seed of Christ. You and I will face judgment. It's interesting, you know, it was supposed to be last Saturday, right, where judgment was supposed to come. Well, it wasn't supposed to be, but, but you know, that's what this one guy thought. It was supposed to come on Saturday. And, and so this was the idea. And so at first, a lot of Christians got all excited. Judgment Day, good, we're going home, we're, we're leaving this rock, and we're going to go see Jesus. And we're going to go see Jesus. And when we go see Jesus, there's going to be judgment. And so then a lot of Christians got scared of that. And they got frightened of it. Because look at what's 
judgment is talking about. In Romans 14.10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In Revelation 22, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, I don't think it's in five months that quickly, but maybe. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. We're going to face judgment. We're going to give an account for the time that we spent here. And for a lot of Christians, when they think about this, terror begins to sink in. And there's all kinds of imagery of what this judgment will look like. How many people have heard the movie theater theology? You heard that? I mean, when we get to heaven, you know, we're all going to, your life is going to be played on the movie screen. Well, not your life, just your sins. Because, you know, that's all that's really interesting. So all your sins are going to be played on this giant movie screen for all of creation to see. How are you going to feel about that one? So don't sin because, you know, I got a good seat and I got popcorn. So don't sin. Right? That's the idea. Your mom's going to be watching. And so who wants to see that? So, so that's the idea. And it's a threat, right? Uh, some look at it this way, you know, this, this splendor of God and then this, this oh, I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> but I don't think this is an accurate picture. Because remember what we read earlier. He is able to make you stand. So here's another picture I found. And, and this is better. The guy's standing. But what's this? And now what's the implication? What are we being judged by? Mm, that's not it either. We're not getting judged. So let's understand first what judgment is not about. So we're going to rule this out. What judgment is not about. In Jeremiah 31, and then later on in Hebrews 10, he says, I will remember your sins on judgment day. With the movie theater. I will remember your sins no more. I will throw them in the sea of my forgetfulness. In Hebrews 9, later on, he's going to say, For as much as that is it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To those who eagerly await him. He's not going to bring up your sins. To do so would be him saying, what I did on the cross wasn't enough. He dealt with your sins. He's removed your sins. As far as the east is from the west, which is a really, really big distance. It's infinity. He's not going to bring them back up. Ever, ever, ever again. So then, what is judgment about then? Well, it's not about your sins. So what it is about is about really what we've done in the energy of ourself versus the energy of the flesh. Let's go back to Corinthians and verse, uh, beginning verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. So if your energy, if you've works, has been out of the flesh, it will become evident on Judgment Day. So if I've been living for God on my own strength and thinking I've done a really good job, I'm going to be in for a big fire. When all that flesh is exposed. That's what is exposing. Not the sins, but my good works in the flesh versus the works that Christ did through me. For each man's work will become evident the day that will show because it is revealed by fire and the fire itself, itself will test the quality of each man's work. In other words, it will test the source from me or from Jesus. If any man works uh, for which he is built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is by fire. Verse 5 then of chapter 4 says, Therefore do not go passing judgment for the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Was it me doing it my own strength, or was it Jesus doing it through me? Then each man's praise will come to him from God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 9-11 Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the word bad really means to be foul or faulty or insufficient. It's of the flesh. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are being made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your conscience. So live accordingly. Live out of the life of Christ. And the result is there will be reward. So what's being judged is the works of the flesh versus the works of Christ. That's what's being exposed. Does that make sense? So the Christian who's really a Pharisee, that will be exposed. The Christian who's trusting in Christ, that will be exposed. And then you will be rewarded accordingly. You'll be rewarded with what passes through the fire. In some degree. Yeah, in some degree. Although I, I think the, the talent one, the last one, is really talking about the unbeliever. But to some degree, the guy with five, five got through. That's right. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's what Christ did. And then the guy with two, that's what Christ did through him. He got two more, and that was the reward. Yeah. yeah. Now, <clears throat> often when we see this reward, we, we start to think, well, what is a reward? And all that. I, to be honest, I have no idea. I really don't. I, I, I don't know what the reward is, and, and I'm okay with that. And if you find out, let me know. I don't think it's as simple as getting you know, a really expensive jewelry set or um, a corner lot with, a, with an oceanfront view um, or you know, a four-bedroom house versus a two-bedroom house. I don't think it's that silly. Uh, I mean, uh, simple uh, is the word I wanted to use. Um, I think it's something far more profound, but I don't know what it is, but I know there is rewards. And and the question then is, well, are we doing it for rewards? Does that just turn into another workspace system? And that's not it at all. C.S. Lewis, I found this quote a little while ago. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And he says this. He says, We must not be troubled by the unbelievers when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. What's a mercenary? Someone who's doing something to get paid. Doesn't matter what, he's just doing it to get paid. Arms dealers are mercenaries. They don't care if they sell weapons to the Taliban, to the states, to, to uh, you know, Iraqi soldiers, to the little kid in the streets. They don't care as long as they're getting paid. That's, it's all about the money. That's what a mercenary is. So he goes, don't worry about people looking at the Christian life as being a mercenary affair. You're just doing those works to get rewarded in heaven. That's not it at all. There are different kinds of rewards. There is a reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it, and is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and if he is and he is not a mercenary for, uh, for desiring it. So the guy who marries for money, yeah, that's not right. But the guy who marries because he loves her, and although she's rich and he gets the money with it, that's not why he's marrying. He's marrying her out of love. Does that make sense? He says a general who fights well in order to get a peerage is a, is a mercenary. So the guy who's going to fight in order to get promoted and a bigger salary and more power, yeah, there's something wrong with that. But a general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. So the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Meaning, the reward that we're going to get is all part of the act. Remember, life is about choices and choices have consequences. Consequences. So make good choices, right? So this is what he's saying here. These rewards that are coming, that's all part of it. And so don't waste your time. Look to Jesus. Continue to grow. Continue to mature. Continue to trust in Him. And there are great things to come. There are wonderful things to come. So, do we have an interpretation 
that's supported by the wording used by the author. Have we, have we had a twist and can contort some words to make it fit? I don't think so. We've, we've acknowledged that the person is a believer. That, that's who he's addressing. So that one seems to fit. Does the interpretation fit the context of the passage? Yeah, it's talking about going on to maturity. And that's what he was talking about, the end of five. And, and then continuing on in chapter six. So that one seems to fit. Well, is the interpretation supported by other passages? Yeah, we saw that in Corinthians. And we saw that in John and others. So that one seems to fit. So what does that say about the warning? I think it fits. I think this is the one that makes sense the most. It's a warning to believers to encourage us to go on to maturity, to not become dull of hearing, to get slothful and lazy and satisfied as a baby Christian, but to continue to grow. You have never arrived. If you ever think you have arrived, all you've shown is your babiness. We need to continue to grow. We need to continue to mature. And that maturity is not automatic. It's something we need to seek after. Seek Him. Pursue Him. So here's the big one then. How do we apply it? What does it mean for us today? Well, the first thing I think is it's an exhortation for us to continue to grow in our faith in Christ. To not remain immature, but press on to full maturity. And if we don't, we run the risk of getting stuck. Getting stuck in where we're at. And God says, okay, that's as far as you want to go, then we'll stop here. And so it's an exhortation. It's a, it's a warning for us to go. In Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, it talked about the practice of the life of righteousness or the, the teaching of righteousness. For those who are, who are familiar with it, they've trained their senses to understand what's of the spirit and what's of flesh. So focus now on Christ living in you. Focus on living out of His life. Grow in that so that you'll be able to spot when it's your flesh or when it's Christ in you. So continue to mature. Continue to become more spiritual. And then finally, He goes on in, in, six, in chapter 6, verses 13 onward. And, um, and let me read it to you. He says... Um, so in verse 11, my and our desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance and hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the rewards and so forth. Now he's going to give us an illustration. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Didn't come right away, but it came. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed an oath. He didn't have to make an oath, but he chose to. Why? For you and I. God swore by himself. So that you and I could have assurance of what? So that by two unchangeable things, that, it is, that which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before, before us. That you, he would know, you're, sorry, you would know that he is a rewarder of those that trust him. That he is faithful to his word. That if you seek him, you will not be disappointed. Conversely, if you don't seek Him, you will be disappointed. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So press on. Press on to maturity. Grow. Look to Him. Depend upon Him. Trust in Him. And you will be rewarded far more than you'll ever know. Far more than you can believe. He is worth it. If, I, if you, you know, put a gun to my head and said, what's the reward that we get? I'd have to say at this point, Jesus. You get to experience more of Him. Sounds pretty good to me.
So press on. Don't be sluggish. Don't settle. Don't ever think you've arrived. There's always more. He is a bottomless pit. So just free fall into Him. Any questions? I don't know if this is a fair question. So if it's not, Ross, you can pass on it. But Excellent. I like that. Yes. There's probably, and I'm guessing, that there would be more material to support one interpretation than another. Was there um, a smaller portion that uh, interpreted it um, uh, in terms of maturity, going, going on to maturity? Oh, yeah, the, 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 by far, by far, the debate is, can you lose your salvation professing versus possessing? By far. That's probably about 90% of the material talking about those ones. So my guess is, is it's slim uh, for those that believe about this, talking about going on to maturity. Yeah, okay. very slim. Yeah, so and, and, and because we've zeroed in on 4, 5, and 6. Would that and, be because the majority of the people that are arguing about it are drinking milk? Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, yeah. They can't handle it. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of it. They, they, they don't have a greater understanding of this teaching on righteousness. Yeah. But when you see the context, you can't help it but come to the conclusion that it's about going on to maturity. And, um, and, and so, yeah, this, this fourth one is, is slim in terms of the, the number of people writing about it. The, the other two, those are the predominant views um, but but this is the only one that makes sense. This is the only one that fits with you know proper biblical hermeneutics. Um, and, and that's the thing. If we follow the simple rules, you know, you'll come to conclu- the same conclusion about ninety eight percent of the time in Scripture, and then the other two percent of the time they're just small variations. So, yes. I Put me on the spot now, huh? No, uh, it's not you, it's just I just want to know about Canada. Well, let me, let me say this. Let me say this. Jesus says, I promise you rest. I promise you joy. I promise you peace. I promise you uh, strength. I, get, I promise you abundant life. Those are some of the things that Jesus has promised us. Taking a look at the church today, do we have all those things in abundance? We don't have a lot of peace. We don't have a lot of trust. I mean, we're freaking out when the stock market crashes. Like the stock market is what's going to protect us and keep us safe. We, we shut down when the Twin Tower is crushed. Because suddenly our world is thrown upside down. But I thought Jesus is our rock. I thought he's the one that protects us. I thought he's the one that saves us. So... I, if we use that as the guide, I think we can't come but to the conclusion that we're like, like what Paul said in Corinthians. We're living like mere men. We are babies in Christ. We look, I mean, those couplets that we saw in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, that's all I see hap- being talked about and preached about are on those basic elementaries of faith. Just, I mean, the same salvation message over and over and over. Get saved, get saved. Well, now what? Now what do I do now I'm saved? Well, I don't know. Here's some more milk. Just keep drinking the milk. Well, I want roast beef. I want to, I want to grow. I want to mature. And, and the very fact you guys are here is evidence. You guys want to mature, and that's, that's good. So we're giving you some roast beef. Hope you can stomach it. Bring it on. <laughs> can we trust that God will complete the work in us? Or yeah. Or are we holding him back? Well, I think, there's, I think there's an element to both. He will complete it. I mean, he's going to get you safe home, right? But, I mean, there are some people, you look at the church in Corinth. They were, they were abusing the, the, the Lord's communion. They're the reason why you get a little thumble of grape juice and a little small cracker. Because they were showing up and they were getting drunk and they were, you know, eating an entire meal there. And so, you know, the, Paul was saying, what are you guys doing? You guys are crazy. Some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. Now, it wasn't that they were you know, passed out because they were drunk. They had died. 
Ananias and Sapphira, the same thing. They lied to God over the, the, the gift that they gave. You know, they sold their parcel of land. They kept half of themselves. They gave half to the church. And they said, this is all we got. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And so God struck them down dead. Did they make it to heaven safe and sound? I believe so. I, I, there's nothing to say they didn't. But God struck them down dead in that moment. He says, no more. I'm not fooling around anymore. You're not going to take this seriously. You're going you're to mess around with me. There's consequences. Asleep you go. And so, but he will get you home safe. He will complete that work as he's promised. But your growth will be stunted. Your growth will be, you'll be immature. Your fruit will never reach maturity. Because you've chosen to be overly concerned with the things of this world. Your flesh. And that's, I hate to say it, but that is the predominant standing of the church. I like what one, one pastor said about when he'd hear Christians talk about, you know, the baptisms and speaking in tongues and all that stuff. He would say, quit your baby talk. Quit your baby talk and grow up. There was a lot of baby talk going on in the church. And, and that's where they're at. And that's not to condemn them, to kick them while they're down, but it's just to say, that's where we're at. So how do I now grow up? What do I now need? Give me some now solid food. Give me some pureed peas that are really cold and tasteless, but it's more than milk. And I'll eat that, and then I can graduate to Cheerios. And, and then I'll eat that, and then, I'll, then I can graduate to uh, some you know, pureed meat. But it's meat now. And then eventually I can get to the roast beef and the steak and pasta and wonderful food like that. And I can be that mature Christian. And the purpose of it is because... We don't know our identity in Christ? Is that why people are at milk? It's more than just not knowing identity. They don't know the cross. They have half the cross. They know Jesus died for them, but that's it. They don't know that they were included in Christ. They died, they buried, they rose again, and Christ now lives in them. I remember I spoke to a pastor one time. I came up to him after a message, and I said, Pastor, how, how many Christians do you think know they died with Christ? And he, he said, I don't know. And I said, Probably less than 10%. Would you agree with that? And he said, yep, I would agree. Less than 10% know that they died with Christ. My next question was, when are you going to preach on it? He says, I have no plans. Now, think about this. This is the truth that Paul says, I will boast in nothing except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where I was crucified unto the world and the world unto me. I determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified the cross. That's what I want to boast about. That's what I want to glory about. And this pastor was saying, I have no plans to talk about it. And, and maybe because he was never taught that. So it's more than just not knowing identity. It's we don't have an understanding of the cross. We don't have an understanding of what Galatians 2.20 really means. We have the, the noun of faith, but not the action, not the verb. We know Jesus as a doctrine, but we don't know Jesus as a person, as our life. That's the maturity. And the more we, we dive into that, the more we grow in that, the more you will be rewarded. The more you will see Him, the more you will experience Him, the more you will come to experience and know life. Amen. Amen. Great questions. Any other great questions that I don't have to answer? <laughs> um, I just have a comment. I think we have to strive as much as in society we all want to lose weight. It seems I say weak because I get a lot of pamphlets in my mailbox. <laughs> and I usually, you know, put them in the blue box. But as much as we want to lose weight, eat right, we want to spiritually as much or more. Uh-oh. <laughs> Running out of time. It's kind of like the children of Israel, right? God's plan was never for them to stay in the wilderness. No. He wanted them to experience the meat. Mm-hmm. He wanted him. But he provided for them. Okay, well now it's time to move on. Grow up. No more manna. Move on from your faith. Make it beyond a noun. Yeah. And she wanted now an action. And even, you think about the story of, of the children of Israel, and this, this blows my mind. There were two and a half tribes. They, they decided to, to you know, go into the wilderness, and now it was time to, to enter into the, into the Canaan. And this is after 40 years. Moses is still alive. And, and these two and a half tribes came up to Moses and said, Moses, you know what? We've been looking around, and, and we kind of like it here. And, and Moses said, you realize that the promised land's on the other side of the river, right? Yeah, but we really like it here on the wilderness side. It's not that bad. 
And Moses said, okay, I'll tell you what. Don't make any decision now. Come with us. Check it out. I'm sure you'll be convinced. And then after we've gone and we've taken the land, then you can make your decision. So they did. All 12 tribes crossed. All 12 tribes fought. And then after they fought and it came to time to divide up the land, Joshua came to these two and a half tribes and said, okay. Now, I know you guys talked to Moses, and, but you faithful. You came, you fought, and you saw the land. And I've, I've got land for you if you want it. This is plan A. But if you don't want it, then that's your choice. You can have a land on the other side. And you know what they chose to do? After partaking of the, of the land, after experiencing, after fighting the battles, they chose to go back to the wilderness. They chose to cross back over. Now, in the biblical imagery of that story, did they lose their salvation? No, they didn't go back to Egypt, but they went back to the land of wilderness, the dryness. Guess who were the first tribes to fall into idolatry, to disappear? Those ones. You reap what you sow. And they chose not to enter into the abundance. And so here we see once those who have been enlightened, enlightened, those who have tasted the good works, those that have, have uh, become partakers of the Holy Spirit and yet have chosen to go back, chosen to become dull of hearing, to be sluggish. But I am far more hopeful for you guys. Amen. Far more hopeful because God will reward. And He won't forget the faith that you've shown in Him and He'll reward that faith. He will knock your socks off. So keep pressing into Him, holding on to that anchor, the hope for our soul. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for Your faithfulness, for Your trustworthiness, for Your ability to continue to provide to us. And we have been feasting on your roast beef, and I trust that you will now begin to digest that. Begin to nourish our souls and to encourage us as we press on into you. Sharpen our ears so we hear from you better. Continue to mature us, to grow us, even if that means more pain and suffering. Because your reward is worth it. May we come to know you as you know the Father, just as you prayed before you went to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.